This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we talk to Caitlin Petre, a media sociologist at Rutgers University, about her new book, All the News That's Fit to Click. It's a critical look at how performance analytics are transforming the work of profit-driven journalism. She exposes how newsroom metrics that measure engage reader engagement with digital news content represent a new intensified form of commercial pressure. Journalists are driven to optimize their content for clicks in ways that end up reshaping the newsroom power dynamics and their own working conditions. Journalism, after all, is a form of labor and one that has become increasingly casualized and precarious. Caitlin Petrie's eye-opening account of data-driven journalism is also an important preview of how the metrics revolution may transform other professions with far-reaching implications. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and really pleased to have Caitlin Petrie with us for the first time. She's an assistant professor of journalism and media studies at Rutgers University, and she studies the impact of data analytics and algorithms in the workplace. These are the buzzwords, right? And these are really important. And she has a brand new book that just came out less than a month ago. It has a terrific title, and it's called All the News That's Fit to Click. It is just out by Princeton, and she's going to join us to talk about really not just what's in the book, but what it means for the larger journalism universe. And Victor Picard says in his excellent review of it at Jacobin.com that her book is an eye-opening account of data-driven journalism, but also an important preview of how the metrics revolution may transform other professions. And I have to say, when I was reading it, that's all I was thinking about. So we're going to get to Caitlin's research premise and what it all pretends for intellectual labor or knowledge work. And I wanted to just start with like just a quote or so from your intro. And you say a central premise of the book is to understand the impact of metrics on contemporary journalism and news, as well as what the proliferation of metrics means for other forms of knowledge work. And so you look closely at how this data interacts with newsroom working conditions and power dynamics. And of course, that's the other really important thing that Caitlin does in her book, which is to look at how metrics are reshaping the labor process and brings in questions about Taylorism and everything else. And we're going to get to all of that. So first, Caitlin Petra, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased. And that's an important topic and, and one that we've been considering a lot. And so it also takes off from, you know, the crisis of journalism. I have friends who say, you know, I still subscribe to print journalist newspapers. I like to do that. <laughs> and most people say that that form of print journalism is dead. And it's not quite dead. It's just changed. But what you take off from is the fact that there's been the closing of tens of thousands of papers and the subjection of those that remain and the journalists who write them to unprecedented commercial pressures, intense supervision and control in the interest of profitability. And the LA Times is really a great case in point. It's not one that you did, but you know, it's like it had several owners, the Tribune Group 
practically destroyed it. It's just been rebought by a local entrepreneur, let's call him, and it's coming back slightly, but we'll get to that and other things. But I'd like you to begin by describing the context of the so-called death of journalism and the commercial pressures that are resulting from the demands on these publications, if you can. Yeah, thank you. Gosh, so the context, I think there was a narrative that became common around the time of 2008-2009, which was that journalism is in big trouble. And I think the writing was on the wall for a while at that point, but that but 2008-2009 is when I think it started to become really clear and hard to ignore that there was a major economic crisis coming in commercial journalism. And the story was essentially, the kind of mainstream story was, well, this is because of the internet. So, you know, these network digital technologies arose and this is kind of a case of disruptive innovation, right? Because all of a sudden the Huffington Post or BuzzFeed or whatever can Mm -hmm. do what the New York Times does, but they do it faster and they make it free. And so, you know, of course the, the Times can't compete or was too late to compete. And so by the time these kind of legacy publications kind of figure out what's going on, they've already missed the boat of digital. In fact, the context is actually quite a bit more complicated. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book as a way of sort of laying the groundwork for understanding analytics, what I study um, in the broader kind of sociopolitical and economic context. So there's sort of a few things happening, right, leading up to and predating, in many cases, the, the rise of network digital technology and the internet. So we have, you know, for decades, corporate consolidation of the news media field. So the FCC is largely declining to do anything about this and the FTC and sort of rubber stamping these sorts of consolidated companies and not really regulating, you know, how big a media company can get. And so you start to get these sort of media mega conglomerates, like one of the ones that had the LA Times for a while. And that was connected to a a sort of degradation of journalism and journalistic working conditions. So that was one thing that was going on is this concentration of the media ownership field. And then There's other things happening as well. So, you know, you also have this kind of declining, I think relatedly, this declining public trust in journalism in the U.S. So if you look at kind of public opinion polling, you see that the trust in newspapers, for instance, dropped, I believe it was 10 percentage points from 2006 to 2016, right? And that's even before Trump. So that we're not even talking about taking into account Trump's crusade against so-called fake news. This is really predating that we're already seeing a kind of decline of trust in news organizations. And so that's another thing that's going on. And then you do have the role of these network digital technologies, but it's not necessarily the technology. It's really much more, I think, about how these technologies get kind of mobilized or the way that certain platform companies are able to become so enormous and so powerful. And so what you start to see is namely Google and Facebook start to gobble up an increasingly huge amount of advertising revenue online. Because it's not as though information ceases to be profitable in the digital age. Like that, it's not even as though news ceases to be profitable. It's the question of, well, who's getting the profits? Where are they going? And increasingly you see online that they're going to these big digital platforms like Google and Facebook. So you have these kind of contextual factors that are all contributing to trouble for news organizations in the U.S., And then on top of that, and this is the specific development that I focus on in the book, you have 
newsrooms suddenly having this avalanche of data about what their audiences are doing. So it's mostly behavioral data, meaning does someone click on a story? Do they share it on social media? Do they email a story to a friend? Are they commenting on the story? You know, how many seconds do they spend looking at your news story before they get bored and click on something else? I mean, it gets really granular um, and it's at the story level, which is really not something that in print media you had ever had before, right? There were subscription figures, so you could know, well, how many people bought this issue of, you know, Newsweek off the newsstand, but you wouldn't know at all at the story level what was drawing the most reader attention. So all of a sudden you have that data and that data comes into newsrooms at this time when they are very vulnerable. Um, And so the book is partly kind of a snapshot of that moment that I was observing, but then is also, I think, I hope, serving as a case study through which we can understand these broader dynamics of what happens when all these digital analytics that can monitor and evaluate worker performance come into fields that we typically think of as being pretty autonomous in the way that work is carried out. This is a really important point. You've just said so much, Caitlin Petrian, and your work looks at the external pressures that, as you're saying, are the source of the push to transform this work. You've just explained that. And it might be a conundrum for some to know that newspapers were profitable and that they've now been asked to be more profitable, much more profitable. I mean, they were extremely profitable. That's the thing is, you know, I think there's an article It's not from even that long ago. I sometimes show it to my students and they can't believe it. It's like from the early 2000s or late 90s. And the headline was in Columbia Journalism Review. And the headline was, you know, why are newspapers so egregiously profitable? Like that was was how it had been. And then they like even if they were profitable and they were delivering something that people felt was vital. And then these new owners would come in and just slash newsrooms, slash costs but tell them they had to increase the profit rate at the same time. So we're going to get to all of that. But you look at the way in your work that the pressure for profits leads to the enforcement of criteria of commercial performance and success. And this is mainly seeing how well journalist stories are doing in ways that I guess we could say are metrics, quantifying reader engagement. Boy, this really hit me because as academics, we're being asked to use metrics to quantify learning outcomes and all sorts of other things too. And it's kind of another issue that I see mainly as control, not about really what we do. But I shouldn't have introduced that, but you say it goes beyond simple page views to the calculation of time spent with the story and the degree of sharing it. You know, and this all leads to this whole question of, I guess, this word we use now, surveillance capitalism. And I really want to have you explain as much as you can about that. And then I guess we'll go from there into what this other wonderful thing that you bring in, which is tailorization. But can you just start with that as well? Absolutely. Yeah. So in the beginning of analytics kind of coming into news organizations, most of the analytics tools that were used were analytics tools that had kind of been designed for an e-commerce setting and then were transported into journalism. And so that was an awkward fit. And there was a lot of trepidation in newsrooms at the time. Um, And I'm talking again now about sort of 2009-ish about what it meant to bring in these tools like Google Analytics into newsrooms when, you know, Google was already viewed suspiciously. So then what happens is there's this company called Chartbeat. 
And Sharpbeat is a tech startup. It's founded in 2009. And the idea behind Sharpbeat was we are going to be an analytics company that is designed specifically for use by journalists in the newsroom. So it's not designed originally for e-commerce, and it's not even going to be designed for the ad folks in the news organization. This is a tool that's being marketed as we are a startup called Sharpie, and we made this tool for you, the journalist, to use in your editorial practice. So this becomes Chartbeat's kind of calling card is that they're going to specialize in analytics for journalists. And then the second thing that they became known for was real-time analytics. So mm. at the time, most analytics tools offered basically static reports. So here's what the traffic to your website looked like yesterday, or here's what it looked like last week, or here's what this month looked like compared to last month, right? And you would get an email report or something like that. Chartbeat changed that. And they said, we're going to focus on real time. So rather than us emailing you at predetermined intervals, here's what your traffic looked like yesterday. We're going to have a dashboard and the dashboard is going to be kind of this wash of data and data visualizations that constantly updates based on information as it comes in. So if, if you have ever looked at, um, you know, the New York Times infamous election needle that was quivering all the night of the 2016 presidential election, that was a real-time data visualization, right? So Chartbeat is packed with, it did have a needle actually showing traffic, how many people were currently on your news website. But then it also had a list of top pages. So what are the articles on your site that are getting the most visitors at this exact second? And that would be constantly shuffling as visitors would come to a story or leave a story. They also had metrics for engaged time. So this was a measure of how many people, or rather how long the average reader spends on a site. And often this was less than a minute for a news website. And they also, I mean, they got deeper than that. They also had metrics on scroll depth. So this is showing how far down a page do most readers scroll before they get board and click on something else. And then they also show where your traffic is coming from, you know, how much comes from Facebook referrals, how much comes from Google search, how much comes from someone coming directly to your website, right? And they're also able to show where people are in the world when they're coming to your website and, and all these sorts of things. So the data does get very granular. Um, that's one thing that that becomes very striking, I think, especially for sort of print newsrooms or written journalism. I won't say print because a lot of these places are online only, but but that was very striking, that granularity, because print news had never had that before. And then the real-time aspect of it turned out to be extremely important for journalists becoming pretty fixated on this dashboard and very absorbed in their metrics. So this is really interesting because I think most people are now aware if they go to, let's say, New York Times, Guardian, LA Times, wherever they go to read their newspaper, if they do it at the actual website, alongside you'll see in the New York Times one, the, the most read stories, something like that. And I always thought, wow, if that wasn't my most read, I better click on that to make sure I, you know, I didn't miss something. Is that the purpose of it, by the way, to get you to click on that? Because this is a really disturbing aspect about all of that. And we're going to get next to what the effect is on the people who were writing these stories, the mm -hmm. journalists themselves. But, you know, there's this pressure to have more people, not just, as you just said, click on it and read it, but stick with it till the end. Absolutely. I think that there's there's certainly a feedback loop that happens, right, where and I do the same exact thing. If I see a story in most popular, especially if it's about something that seems 
like it maybe I wouldn't expect it to be very popular. I think, well, there must be something about this story that's compelling. And so click, right? So I think that there are those feedback loops. And yeah, I think absolutely that one of the reasons why those lists are on news websites is to, yeah, increase audience time spent, increase engagement. Hopefully, if there's a story that's getting a lot of attention, then you want people to share that on social media so that you bring in even more readers and get a wider reach for your story. Absolutely. So yes, I think that is part of the intention of having those lists. And people like to know what other people are reading and watching and doing. So it it sort of taps into this. It's almost like a fear of missing out FOMO. Like, well, if if everybody's reading this story, I don't want to not read the story. Exactly. (laughs) I think it it does uh, trigger that in us. Okay. So now then let's get to the other part of it, because at the heart of your book is what you might call the tailorization of journalistic work. And we need to have you explain that for the listeners. But, you know, this is management's disciplining of journalism to be ever more productive in order to quantify the criteria of a performance. And you go into by way of de-skilling jobs, simplifying them, intensifying labor inputs and it's about labor management in journalism because journalism is not just what you read. It's also, as you very well point out, it's a labor process too that we're looking at. And you talk about, you say that this is about labor management in journalism following labor management in industry more generally along the lines of Harry Braverman's wonderful book. So could you like first by let our listeners know what Taylorism is and what does it mean in journalism? And then we'll get into maybe self-Taylorization. Yes, great. Yeah, so in 1911, there's this mechanical engineer named Frederick Taylor, and he writes this book called The Principles of Scientific Management. And in this book, He argues that if managers want to make work more efficient and more profitable, they need to pay really close attention to what he calls the labor process. And a simple way of understanding the labor process is sort of how is work organized and how are work tasks managed, right? So Taylor says we need to pay more attention to the labor process and how work is carried out. And so Taylorism or scientific management becomes associated with something called time studies where Essentially, managers would basically they would take a task, a work task, like one of the examples he uses is loading, you know, big pieces of iron into a railway car or something like that, physical labor, and take this task. And then you break the task down into its smallest component pieces. You might think of them as like micro tasks. And then the manager sort of figures out how to optimize each of those micro tasks such that it is done as efficiently as possible. And this is kind of controlling the movement of the worker. How exactly are you going to do each of these things down to the most minute detail? And you really optimize, you know, via the use of these time studies, via the use of the manager with the stopwatch, timing each micro task and kind of trying to figure out what's the most efficient way. Via these time studies, you optimize the labor process. You kind of extract as much productivity from the workers in the time that you have as possible. And so this kind of scientific management, these sorts of techniques were thought to do two things, right? And here I'm getting into Harry Braverman's work where Labor and Monopoly Capital is his book. He wrote it in the 70s. And this is brilliant and really interesting analysis of Taylorism. And Braverman says, it sort of does two things. So first, it it makes the labor process more efficient and and like more profitable, but it also does something called de-skilling. So it basically de-skills the worker because what happens in scientific management or in Taylorism is that the high level thinking 
of how the work is going to be organized and carried out falls almost entirely to the manager. And then the workers become these sort of interchangeable cogs who are just delegated to do their specific micro tasks in the exact way prescribed by the manager. And that takes any kind of craft skill that they may have had away from them. So scientific management techniques uh, kind of grew up in like industrial work contexts. And then there's really great work in sociology about how they're spreading in the second half of the 20th century into retail work and, you know, clerical work and service work. There's fascinating studies of call centers, right? People who, you know, work in customer service centers and they answer calls from cranky customers all day and, and how that work has been or is tailorized and scientifically managed. But one of the things that I got interested in was that it, it seemed to me that with the rise of digital analytics and in journalism, these kinds of economic pressures that I spoke about a few minutes ago, we start to see these tailorist um, or scientific management techniques come into fields where the workers have an expectation that they're going to have some degree of autonomy over their work because that work is artistic or it's creative or it's writing, right, in the case of journalism. And so those workers up until fairly recently, had been relatively, relatively insulated from this kind of scientific management that had bled into all these other fields. And then you start to see, especially with the rise of digital analytics, you start to see these types of scientific management techniques come into fields like journalism or maybe like academia, right? We can we can get into those comparisons as well, but certainly into journalism. So in 2011, I opened the book with this anecdote that in 2011, which was exactly 100 years after Frederick Taylor publishes his study introducing this idea of scientific management, 100 years go by and in 2011, there's this leaked PowerPoint called the AOL Way, which was sort of going to be this AOL strategy for how to turn around its flailing media operation into something profitable. So this, this PowerPoint, which was supposed to be internal, gets leaked to the media. And if you look through this PowerPoint, it's just amazing because it is this vision for the intense tailorization of journalism. So what AOL calls the content generation process not writing. The content generation process is broken up into these seven steps and each step has sub-steps, right? And so we see this is sort of exactly this breakdown of the, the very high level cognitive work of journalism being turned into something much more rote and much more standardized. And so it was that sort of transformation that was getting me really interested in metrics. But then because journalists have this expectation of some autonomy over their work, they find really interesting ways to challenge this or push back. And so one of the central arguments in my book is that metrics and the importation of scientific management has to look different in a knowledge work context. It has to be a little bit more sneaky because otherwise the idea was that these journalists would completely revolt. This is really good. And the book is called All the News That's Fit to Click. And that is so tantalizing in a way too, because it you think about that, like what goes into what makes a story clickable. And of course, we all know the way that clickbait is used now on all of these sites that are practically make it impossible to read anything because ads just keep getting in the way of all the content. And then you get to the clickbait at the bottom. But this is different than that. This is like in serious journalism you're talking about as well. I'd like you to go into that too, like how important the clicks, the profits, the ads are to this metric revolution. And then do you talk about the way that management involves workers in their own tailorization? So in labor intensification, and it's really hard to get your head around that in thinking about 
you know, your old view of what journalism is that you're writing. First, you go out and you do reporting and then you write and you can imagine deadlines that are terrible pressures. But there's other sorts of ways now that labor is intensified that you go into and you get them to identify explicitly with the processes that increase the traffic of the stories that are being produced. And so on the one hand, and I I want you to go into this, Caitlin Petrie, is that it leaves workers with a certain measure of autonomy so they can be a little bit creative with respect to the intensification of their own work in relation to marketing it. Well, let's start with that. And then we'll go later into gamification and some of the, what may come from this? What does this pretend? So go ahead. Yeah. Great questions. There's so much to dig into here. I'm trying to decide what I want to tackle first. You know, one of the reasons that I'll start by talking about, so you mentioned, you know, how important are metrics to profits or what's the relationship there? which is a really important question, right? I think it definitely depends on the news organization to some extent. So I'll say that first. So if you're, it depends on how you make your money, right? And so at the time that I did this study, which is sort of in the early 2010s, so not that long ago, but about a millennia ago in internet time, when I did this study, generally with a few exceptions, most online news organizations or online and print news organizations, their content online was free. You had the Wall Street Journal, which had this ironclad paywall, but but they were really the exception. You know, the Times even had experimented with this thing, Times Select, and it didn't work out very well. And so they had not even really implemented or were just implementing their paywall, which they have now. And so at that moment, most online news organizations were entirely advertising based, right? Their revenue was entirely dependent on advertising. And the Times, you know, up until very recently, most of their revenue share did come from advertising as well. And it's just in the last 10 years that it's switched. So now most of their revenue comes from subscribers. That's a really big change. That was a really big deal, right? So, So we have a media system that is really built up on advertising. <laughs> that Advertising is subsidizing the creation and production of journalism. And advertising depends on reach, right? Because advertisers are trying to buy basically the attention of your audience, your readers. And so that's where clicks become connected to profits. The idea is that, you know, if you look at the way that online advertising is bought and sold, and I'm going to really simplify it because ad technology is incredibly complicated, (laughs) but basically, you know, they're bought and sold based on, you know, who can you get my advertisement in front of? And so the publication is basically guaranteeing you're going to get this many impressions, um, basically views, right? And so impressions sort of map onto clicks. Journalists don't call it impressions. They call it clicks or views, page views, but it's basically the same idea. So clicks are very, very important to to profits. And in the last, I would say, five years, maybe seven years, we've seen that increasingly online, even online only news organizations are trying to move into more subscription-based model. So you see places like Slate, which didn't have a paywall, now they do. Or places where their content sort of used to be free online and dependent entirely on advertising revenue, and now it's not, right? So we do see a little bit of that. And that is a, a mixed bag and something that I can talk a lot more about. But but I would say even so, it's typically still the case, even if you have a metered paywall, that you are going to be very dependent on advertising revenue, and therefore you're dependent on a wide reach for your stories. And another piece that I want to bring up here is the role of the digital media platforms. Because 
what becomes immediately clear the second that you look at any of these traffic dashboards is just how much these news organizations are relying on particularly Facebook, sometimes Google, much less Twitter, but still some. They're relying on these giant tech companies for distribution. So in order to get wide distribution on Facebook, your story has to be a particular type of story, right? Because Facebook's algorithm, and we've just in the last few weeks learned much more about this from the leaks, um, (laughs) Facebook's algorithm really privileges um, particular types of content, particular types of tone. And so, you know, journalists are sort of engaged constantly in this attempt to yes, get clicks and also try to understand what the algorithm is after and how to kind of be appealing to these very inscrutable tech algorithms. So that's the connection between metrics and profits. It's a, it's a pretty direct connection in a lot of cases. In some cases, it's less so. So for a while, um, this sort of time spent metric became quite, I want to say trendy almost, that it became this notion that well, you know, if we look at clicks, then that degrades journalism. But if we look at how much time someone spends reading something, then that's a way to sort of bring these commercial imperatives and these civic imperatives into alignment. I don't think that turned out to be the case. But, you know, but that was an interesting metric to become trendy because it it didn't map on quite so seamlessly onto online advertising. The connection was a little bit more indirect. But that metric rose in prominence at the same time that Facebook not coincidentally, was saying, oh, well, what we care about is, you know, we're going to start looking at how much time someone spends reading an article as a way to gauge whether we're going to give it algorithmic amplification. So, you know, in a sense, the news organizations, especially those that can't really have a subscription-based business, they're in a position where Facebook says jump and they sort of have to say, well, how high, right? And do whatever Facebook is saying. So that's that piece of your question. And then the the second piece about workers self-tailorizing. Yeah. So this was something that came up, especially in my research at Gawker Media, which if you're not familiar with that news organization, it was at the time, it's gone through so many, (laughs) so many phases of evolution since then. But at the time of my research there, which was in around like 2013, it was this independently owned network of blogs that covered a variety of topics. There was a feminist site, there was a sort of celebrity gossip and politics and media gossip site. There was a personal tech site and a car site and and video games and all kinds of things. And so Gawker became well known for being this digital upstart that was going to sort of slay the sacred cows of traditional legacy media, like the way that the New York Times does things, for instance, which was why those two organizations made for an interesting comparison. One of the ways that they're going to slay the sacred cows of traditional journalism is that they're going to be really unabashed about caring about audience analytics, and they're going to look at metrics with no compunction, basically. And so Gawker made these analytics dashboards, including Chartbeat, widely available to all of their editorial workers. And then they also, even on the walls of the offices there, had leaderboards that were showing which stories were getting the most visitors at that moment. These are also real time, so they're shuffling all the time. And one of the things that was so fascinating to me is I would ask writers at Gawker, you know, how do you feel about Chartbeat? And one of the first words I always heard was, I'm addicted to it. I'm, I'm just completely <laughs> addicted to it. And this journalist beyond Gawker as well often speak about Chartbeat in the language of addiction, which I thought was really interesting and striking. And so one of the chapters of the book is dedicated to me sort of trying to figure out, well, what makes this feel so addictive? And I argue that if you look at the literature on game design and video game design in particular, like digital games, sometimes you will see features of very compelling digital games that bear a lot of similarity to Chartbeat. Mm -hmm. And what this meant 
practically speaking, was that journalists at Gawker became very fixated on and mesmerized in some cases by Chartbeat. And in so doing, they start to try to boost their traffic on Chartbeat, not because a manager is directly telling them that they have to do that, but just because they want to get a better score in this, what I call the traffic game. And so so Chartbeat becomes this really fascinating, I think, I would say Chartbeat, even though it was brought in by company management, almost obfuscates the role of management in setting these types of traffic targets and in intensifying journalistic work. Because I would literally have writers at Gawker say to me, I look at Chartbeat way more than I should. And I would say, should? What do you mean? And oh, my editor always says, don't look at it so much, right? Um, But it's my fault. I can't stop myself. I'm so addicted to it. So it was this very sort of individualized self-blaming that happened, which was so striking to me because, of course, management is the one making this technology (laughs) available to you. But so workers at Gawker start to kind of extract increased productivity feeling like they're doing it to themselves. Like I need to get a higher score. So I'm going to write more posts because I know any post I write is going to get some traffic or I'm going to fiddle with this headline or I'm going to try tweeting this this morning as opposed to, you know, last night because maybe it'll get better play, right? So all of that is basically a work speed up or a work intensification. They're working harder and harder and harder but they don't feel that it's because they're being coerced to do so. Um, And it's not because of any explicit directive from management. It's because Chartbeat is a tool that forms a relationship and often a very emotional relationship directly with the managed worker, in this case, the journalist. And so when I say self-tailorize, that's sort of what I'm, I'm talking about, is that the role of management in increasing these production pressures is almost obscured by the tool. This is just so interesting. Uh, Kaylin Petri, I'm just, you know, all kinds of images come to mind when you talked about Chartbeat and then the board, the dashboard. I was thinking, you know, we know dashboards and academic things, but also I was thinking of the big board and Dr. Strangelove. But, you know, Sarah Mason wrote this really interesting article about her experience as a Lyft and Uber driver. And she talked about gamification as well in a way that rideshare companies use bonuses and stars and likes. And, you know, she was like obsessively cleaning her car and putting little treats out. She's doing PhD research at the same time on this, but she said it made you addicted to the process. And so it was like gamification and it would push you to get more and more rides. And as, as you were, you know, talking about this, I was thinking, how could this be in a newsroom? Because you can't write seven more stories in an hour, but now you just said you could write. Yes. Well, so, but it brings up this whole question and I, maybe you've gone through it, but let's do it a little bit more because what does this mean for one's control over one's own work process? If on the one hand, you're intensifying your own work because you're mesmerized or addicted, do you get financial compensation for that or, or some sort of, you know, I don't know, satisfaction for doing a better job or more or content or what, you know? And so I want you to like talk about, you know, that. And, and the other interesting thing, and I forgot to say at the very outset is that in doing your research, you looked at both Gawker and the New York Times, and then you also did this chart beat. And it seems face value, they're very, very different, Gawker and the New York Times. But wow. So how does this self-tailorization, metric management, and all of that, what does it mean for autonomy in this work process and what we tend to think of as what a journalist really does? It's interesting to think about the 
dividends, for lack of a better word, that, <laughs> that writers felt like they got raised. So one book that is hugely sort of significant in my understanding, particularly this self-tailorization, as you called it, is you know Michael Burvoy's work and particularly manufacturing consent, because this is not an entirely new thing, right? So Burvoy in, gosh, I'm forgetting when that book was published. I want to say 79, somewhere around there. He's a sociologist. He's a participant observer in a factory shop floor, trying to understand the labor process and then this industrial work context. And he writes at length about how the workers played games, mainly because they were very bored. And so they played games sort of to gain bragging rights and to pass the time. And he writes, you know, yes, there was this bonus that was available if you exceeded a production quota. So it wasn't as though there was no material reward for intensifying your own work in this way. But he says that's not the main reason that was driving this. And that that's really interesting to me. I think some similar dynamics existed at Gawker. So there was a bonus system where basically Gawker had eight core websites. And if each website had a traffic target for each month, that was based on their historical traffic. So it was a sort of a target for growth. And if they exceeded that traffic target as a collective site, they were eligible for a site level bonus, which then their editor decided to dispense as he or she saw fit, which is interesting. And it's very different, crucially different from writers get individual bonuses pegged directly to their traffic. Gawker had experimented with a sort of pay for performance scheme and they ultimately abandoned it in favor of the system that they had at the time I researched. So So there was money on the table and it was kind of this pool of money that would accrue to your site rather than necessarily to you as an individual. But I think there was writers who felt addicted to Sharpie did not talk about needing the bonus like that. Similar to Burrowboy, like that was not (laughs) the main front and center thing. Certainly it was in their mind, but I think that there just became, actually a lot of them talked about a background in competitive sports. So they would say, you know, like I would say, explain why you thrive in this metricized work environment or, or how you survive. And they would say, well, you know, I rode competitive crew in college or whatever it was. I ran track. And so I remember this quote, a writer named Eddie, that's a pseudonym, but he said something like, I'm a very competitive person. And that side of me was massaged into productivity by analytics. So you see, that's just such a vivid quote to me because you see really the role of the data in channeling something, which is competition, which is ambition, which is I'm a journalist and I want to do this work well. And it becomes channeled into this, this kind of self-work intensification that, that I found. So the bonus is part of it, but it's but as with Buravoy's work, you know, on the factory floor, it's not the whole story there. So that leads to this other question, and that is about unionization. And does it help journalists in the news industry as a whole to have a union? I mean, you've just talked about some pretty, I guess, disturbing things in a way because the competition is individual. And you don't get a sense here of the kind of coming together in solidarity to form a union against the demands for increasing productivity or making, you know, like, especially now coming out of the pandemic, we're seeing that people are questioning these onerous workloads and that we're being asked to even intensify in some ways. So what does it mean to have a union? And you talk about in your conclusion, the trend toward unionization in digital newsrooms, and in fact, how many have, have unionized. So does it help? Does it change anything? 
So this is one of the most fascinating things to me, which is that Gawker Media, where I had done this field work in these interviews, one of the most metrics heavy, metrics saturated newsrooms you could imagine is in 2015, summer 2015, the first kind of prominent digital newsroom to unionize. And it's really hard to overstate how much this move by Gawker and the wave of unionization across these digital newsrooms that Gawker's unionization kind of precipitated, how much this trend went against what at the time or right prior was the prevailing discourse about these young digital journalists, right? So in January 2015, there's this article in the Washington Post. The headline was literally, why digital journalists don't organize. And one of the arguments was, this is generational. You know, these millennial journalists, they see themselves as kind of building an individual brand that partly based on how much audience, you know, the attention they can accrue, um, that they're going to take from one organization to another. And they're, it, it's very atomized. And this is, they've kind of bought into what some critical scholars of cultural work called enterprise values or enterprise discourse, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to be in this incredibly prestigious and exciting profession. And therefore, I shouldn't try to get better working conditions. So there was this understanding of as late as early 2015 of these millennial journalists at places like Gawker are are just never going to unionize. And then lo and behold, not only do they, but the first organization to do it is Gawker, which is one of the most metric saturated newsrooms. And so I kind of wrote, this happened, by the way, after my fieldwork at Gawker had basically concluded, but I was so fascinated that I wrote about it in the book, just trying to understand where this had come from. And, you know, I think that there's a couple things going on. So one thing I want to point out is, is you said, you know, this is individual competition. In some sense, it is. It's certainly people felt competing against themselves. It's funny, Gawker staffers had no objection to metrics being in their workflow that I could see, except that at the sort of beginning of my field work, management had put in a new leaderboard. And this leaderboard, instead of ranking stories by their traffic, it ranked individual writers by their traffic. And this was the only time that I heard writers at Gawker lose it about metrics. Like they, there was such a big backlash to this leaderboard that actually eventually management capitulated and took this thing down because people were so enraged, right? So that was another interesting signal to me of, okay, there's a certain point at which this becomes so kind of individualized pressure that feels different, is experienced differently by these journalists than our site can get this bonus together if we as a group exceed a traffic target, right? This felt different to them. It felt very unfair to them. They complained about it a lot and they they just were enraged by it. So that was really fascinating. And it made me think, you know, maybe this group isn't quite as atomized as you might expect based on their kind of tolerance for these these traffic metrics, right? And this kind of self-tailorization that you talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was an interesting signal. And then, you know, another really fascinating thing was that when journalists at Gawker unionized, they didn't ask for not to have metrics anymore. (laughs) Like that wasn't the nature of their concerns. You know, the stuff that they wanted was kind of like making K-scales more uniform and transparent. I mean, kind of bread and butter type of stuff. But it was really fascinating to me, like 
how is it that this group that seems so kind of dominated by these numbers then comes together and unionizes, but their grievances are not about the numbers. And that was really fascinating. And you know, one of the things I suggest in the conclusion of the book, and I will say this is where I, I feel a bit more kind of speculative because again, you know, my research ended prior to this unionization wave, but I do conclude the book by wondering, and I'll wonder here, if there might be something about metrics that sort of crystallize or symbolize the fact that if you're a journalist, you're still a worker, right? So even if your work is feels really prestigious or you're really excited to be doing this job and this is the job you've always wanted, that's still the case, right? But you're a worker and you have a specific your labor has a specific economic measurable value to this company and it's right there on your wall of your office, right? And so it becomes very hard to to ignore that <laughs> when metrics are literally looming over you in your workspace. And it's potentially possible that part of this kind of mindset that emerges in digital news organizations that people were saying as early as early 2015 would never happen, you know, maybe there's some relationship there. Not to say that that's the main reason or the only reason. I think there's many other reasons why um, why this wave of unionization among these mostly young digital journalists occurred. But I think it's interesting to consider the way metrics really put front and center that journalists are, yes, they're knowledge workers, if we want to say that that's a category, but they're workers nonetheless. So final question, and I just, it's so exciting. All of your research is Caitlin Petrie. Let me just say one more time so listeners can get it. It's all the news that's fit to click. And it's just out by Princeton University Press. And you you say that your work is a snapshot. You said it earlier in, in the interview as well, that it's of an ever-changing digital media industry. And you also have said throughout, like when you did this research and prior to even newer changes, But you also say in the book, and and you kind of touched on it there, that the introduction of metrics can be an asset as well as a liability, and that in some ways it can be empowering. And I think that might be a good way to kind of tie it all up if you can just sort of describe that. You know, it's interesting to think about that. One of the things that was really striking to me at the Times, which we haven't spoken as much about, but, you know, the New York Times is quite different from Gawker in just about every respect. It's, you know, 150 years old and it's owned majority by a single family. Actually, that part's not that different from Gawker, but it's it's just this sort of pinnacle of a legacy publication. And at the time that I was there is, is really trying to figure out, you know, how can we still be the New York Times, but also exist in this digital space um, and be a really a digital publication. And so Gawker and the Times so different, but they both use the same analytics tool. They both have Chartbeat subscriptions, they're Chartbeat clients. So that was something that was really interesting to me is, you know, how does the same technology get taken up in these such different organizational and workplace contexts? And one of the things that was fascinating about the times at the time that I was there was that reporters weren't allowed to see Chartbeat. They didn't have a login to Chartbeat. So editors could see this data and reporters did not have access to it. And if you would ask some editors why, it would be all about, you know, well, we want to preserve their news judgment. So they can't be exposed to metrics because that will corrupt their news judgment. But of course, the editors are trusting themselves to look at it and and to try to, you know, take it into account. And so, you know, reporters were getting a bit frustrated about this because they, they had the sense that editors had this information, but they didn't really know how it was being used. They didn't really know what was expected of them. And they couldn't even see how much traffic their stories got. And some of them really wanted this information because, 
you know, partly because they were kind of curious and, you know, maybe it's a little bit of an ego thing, but I think partly because they sensed that their higher ups had it. And so they felt that, you know, there's power there, right? There's power in being able to see how many people are looking at your stuff. It's a, it's kind of another yardstick to measure your performance outside of just what your editor happens to think about your work, right? And sometimes writers at Gawker who did have access to metrics would ex- leverage metrics specifically in that way. You know, they would say, well, my editor, you know, the, the higher up editorial executives don't really care about what I do because I write about feminist issues. And so therefore, if I'm going to ask for a raise, like I've got to really know my audience stats so that I can bring this to them, right? So at the times you have this interesting hierarchical organizational structure where editors really want to preserve that, right? They want to be the barometer by which reporters evaluate the worth of their work and metrics are a threat to that. And so that's one of the reasons why there's this kind of hoarding of the data that happens. And that was sort of an interesting counter case to me because I, I was thinking, you know, if this is going to be in the newsroom, to not be able to see it for your own work is arguably disempowering for you because you don't have full transparency about you know what you are bringing in or not bringing in. And in fact, in 2015 as well, I believe it was 2015, that the Washington Post Union negotiated a new contract. And one of the things they wanted was more access to analytics because they said, this stuff is starting to come up in performance reviews. And how are you going to compare someone covering like Hillary Clinton to someone covering, you know, a suburb of DC? It's not clear how to do that. And yet it's starting to come up in the way that we're evaluated. And therefore we want access to these numbers because they're there because they're circulating. And so we, we need to have access to them. And so, you know, I think there's some cases in which writers were able to almost leverage data in ways that could give them some power or a greater degree of autonomy it's a mixed bag. It's a really complex issue. And I, (laughs) yeah, it's, it's not a simple story of total Taylorism and managerial domination. It's much more kind of complex than that. Well, unfortunately we don't have a lot more time, but I can see just literally how pregnant your work is because the possibilities are endless. And as you say, I think elsewhere that this metrics revolution could also transform other professions. I don't know where your research is going to go next, if you're going to look at that. But, you know, I want to congratulate you for doing this and for doing it literally as something that you can't get the contours of something that's in the process of becoming. And that is the way that this metrics is transforming so much of how we work. Now, even added to that, we can say the fact that so many people are working at home now, that's another factor, but we don't have time to do that now. But I just want to let the listeners know they should run out and get your book. And it is all the news that's fit to click. We kind of scratched the surface of it, but got a lot of the essential ideas, I think, but it's a really good read and I hope that you run out and get it. And Caitlin Petrick, congratulations for writing that. You're Assistant Professor of Journalism and Media Studies at Rutgers and, of course, studying data analytics. So this is the book, All the News That's Fit to Click. Thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you so much for having me, Susie. It's been really a pleasure. 